We will continue our study this morning as we look at verses 19 to 24. We began the study in, the, in this passage, which is really 14 to 24. We did not get through it last time. So I'm going to read the verses, and then we will proceed to finish our study that we began last weekend. Verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray that God will prepare our hearts now to receive the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your divine truth, and I ask now that you prepare everyone's heart here, your church, your people, saved by grace, to grasp and understand the divine truth revealed for us here in this portion of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that anyone here this morning that stands yet dead in their trespasses and sins, who is not a born-again believer in your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today you would bring them to the place of spiritual life, that you would grant them the regenerating power of your spirit and cause them to be born again by your abundant, ever-abounding grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last time, we covered verses 14 through 18. We looked at the disposition of Christ's teaching, the doctrine of Christ's teaching, and today we will get to the duty of Christ's teaching. So this is part two. The intention was to get through it last time. We did not do that. So we want to recap a couple things. If you weren't here, we encourage you to go to our website and and listen to this so that everything connects properly and you have a true grasp of everything that's going on here. First, we we came to understand the disposition or the nature or the character of Christ's teaching here in these verses in that it was on divine time and it was of divine wisdom. The teaching of Jesus Christ was on divine time and of divine wisdom. Now Jesus entered into the Feast of Tabernacles. Prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, the unbelieving half-brothers of Jesus approached him and he said, if you want to reveal yourself, you ought to go into Jerusalem. You need to go where the action is. You're making these great claims? Go where the action is. Go to Jerusalem so that everyone can see your works. 
Don't be messing around up here in the outskirts of Galilee. Get to Jerusalem. But Jesus said, you know what? You can go anytime you want for your time is anytime. But my time has not yet come. You see, Jesus Christ was on the divine timetable of the Father. And He wasn't going to go a minute too soon or a minute too late. So it was about the middle of the feast, verse 14, that Jesus finally went up to Jerusalem and entered into the temple and he began to teach. Now, what rabbis would do in that day is they would enter into the temple, they would approach one of the pillars of the temple, outside of the temple, they would begin to proclaim truth, they would begin to teach. And a rabbi, when he would teach, would prepare himself by sitting down. That was the position of teaching. People would gather around him and they would begin to expound the scriptures. So Jesus goes on divine time. He begins to teach. Verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? He did not come up through the rabbinical training system that we have. He's a Galilean peasant. Where does he get this authority? Where did he learn the letters? Where did he learn to expound the law like this? They were amazed. So, there's his disposition. Divine time, Divine wisdom. Divine authority. Now, Jesus waited certainly to avoid the hostility that these Jewish leaders had against him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him murdered. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to stop him. He was claiming equality with God the Father. To claim equality with God the Father is to declare deity. That is to proclaim that you are God in the flesh. Which of them would be blasphemy. But yet the very one that they were supposed to have been waiting for, the Messiah, they missed him. Because of their pride and their self-righteousness. We're going to learn a lot about self-righteousness today. It's not Christians who are self-righteous because they have, by God's grace, fallen at the foot of the cross realizing that there's nothing they can do to earn salvation. It's people who think that they're good enough that they can outweigh their bad with their good. If they try hard enough, they attempt to uphold the law that they'll make it into heaven. That is the epitome of self-righteousness. So to avoid hostility, he goes up, according to the divine timetable of God, as well as to hold off any premature triumphal entry that the people may proclaim him as Messiah, it was not time yet. That would come six or seven months later. So that was his disposition. The doctrine of the Lord's teaching was, not, was that it was not of an earthly origin, but it was directly from the Father in heaven. Jesus clarifies the source of his learning by referring them to him who sent me. That's where my teaching comes from. That's where my authority comes from. From Him who sent me. The Father who sent the Son. Jesus never claimed to be the originator of His message. In other words, His message was not derived from any earthly origin. He, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word Himself, came and intended all glory to be given back to the Father. This bewildered them. So Jesus assures them that the source of his message is undeniably divine. It is heavenly. It is not earthly. Jesus was the perfect man with the perfect message. 
of a perfect holy God. And he therefore gives all credit to the one who sent him, his Father. Jesus said many times, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For my I and my Father are one. All that, is made, all that makes up the essence and nature of God the Father, Jesus Christ is. Therefore, to refuse the words of Jesus Christ is to refuse the words of God the Father. To say that you believe in God and not believe in the claims and the purpose, the power and the person of Jesus Christ is not to have God. Everything that Jesus says, everything that he does is the standard for what is genuine, what is true, and for what is altogether right. So Jesus goes on to affirm that any truly sincere person would know where his message originated. Anyone who was sincerely there to put his words to the test will come to know where his message originated. And the key verse of the entire passage, verses 14 to 24, is verse 17. Take a look at it. If, Jesus says, anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So the words will, the word wills and wills to do here in verse 17 could be better translated desires. If anyone desires to do God's will, he shall know concerning the teaching. That's what doctrine is. Correct teaching. So the words there infer being someone who's resolved to do. Someone who's determined. Someone who is purposed in their, in, in their mind, within themselves, to do the will of God. And if they purpose to do the will of God, and they're serious about searching the Scriptures, seeking to know God's will, then you will know. That's a guarantee. It is a guarantee. So Jesus says here, then you will know that what I say is not something I'm making up, but is the actual words of Almighty God, my Father. Given to the prophets, handed down to you, see for yourself. You know, this is the only subjective test as to the soundness of Christ's claims. Subjective, experiential. If you want to experience whether or not Jesus Christ is who He claims to be, then you will to do His will and you will find out. If, however, you come out the other end saying, well, I put, it to the, I put Him to the test and it didn't work out for me, you, your will was not birthed from a desire to do His will in the first place. In other words, it wasn't from God. It wasn't from God. The religious leaders that Jesus was con confronting here were ignorant as to the meaning of Scripture. They knew the Scripture. They knew what it said. They did not know what it meant by what it said. Because the fulfillment and the author of it was standing before them, accusing them, pointing his finger at them, condemning them. And they missed him because of their pride. Pride is the root of all sin. And that was their makeup. They were obviously misled as to what the Word of God meant on any particular subject, specifically the work of the Messiah, what He would do, what He would say, and the way of salvation that He would proclaim. They missed it. Now the people... The common people had been relying merely on what the teachers taught them. 
They depended upon the teachings of the rabbis. And unfortunately, their teachers had long since twisted the scriptures to their own devices. So basically, the Jews had to rely solely on their leaders to bring them the teachings and the doctrines. And they had perverted those teachings. In fact, it's not like, unlike many today who experience such type of authority and claim to be Christian that have no idea as to what the true gospel is. You know, growing up with many Roman Catholic friends I know who, who never opened a Bible in their life. They are never encouraged to open up the Word of God. Some of, them, some of them attended Catholic schools for 12 years and were never introduced to the Bible as the Word of God. To be picked up, to be read, to be obeyed. They were instructed to rely solely on the priest or the church. Certainly for the fear of reading the Bible on their own might draw up some incorrect teaching or really a fear for what it really says. A clear understanding and correct teaching. But the Roman Catholics are not the only ones guilty of this. There are many Protestant churches who have taken the same attitude. Leadership in many churches would rather have you rely on those leaders alone. Tradition. Depend upon tradition to keep you dumbed down from the divine truth. To keep divine truth hidden. Because if the man or the woman in the pew actually read God's word, they might actually challenge these leaders. They might challenge these man-made traditions, revealing them for what they really are. But as always... Men who speak on their own accord that aren't subject to the Word of God, if you follow them long enough, you will see that they seek the praises of men. They want to be exalted. That's their desire. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 18, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. I mean, this is so prevalent today. He who speaks on his own is to gain for himself the honor of the people that listen to him. And how often have we seen this where church leaders begin to introduce extra-biblical revelations? God told me this. I've been given an epiphany. I have had some grand revelation. God transported me to heaven or he allowed me to see hell. I had a specific special meeting with Jesus and he told me this. And if you listen to what they say, their words often contradict what the Bible says. And if their words or their visions or whatnot contradict what the Bible says, it's not of God. It is not of God. And they are heretics. If someone in the congregation steps forward to confront this contradiction, this apparent vision that they had, if they do so, oftentimes those leaders will say, hey, you're quenching the spirit, you're being used as a tool of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me. Right? They try to, they use tools of intimidation now. Because you're trying to stifle what God is doing here, even though it's contrary to the Word of God. If it doesn't match up with the Word of God, the day that you begin to depend on visions in, in extra special revelation that is not birthed out of the Word of God, that's the day you stop hearing from God. That is the day you stop hearing from God. God's instruction to His church comes by way of His Word. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God communicates through his word. God has exalted his word to that of his own name, the word of God. Anyone who desires to gain honor for himself is going to teach in a way that does not make waves. When a man stands at a position such as this behind some pulpit and he wants to gain glory for himself, he's not going to teach the truth of God because the, teach of, the, the, the truth of God convicts and it cuts and it makes waves. So to attain glory for yourself, you have to give people what they want. You have to tickle their ears, you see. You have to become, give them ear candy. It's very dangerous. This is exactly what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It says, The time will come when they will, know, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will keep up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. To fables. This has always been happening and always will happen. And the point that Jesus was making was that if, if he were simply trying to bring honor to himself, why in the world was his teaching creating or actually revealing enemies? If he wanted to tickle ears, he'd tickle ears. If his message was his own, he'd tell the people what they want to hear. He'd make them feel good about themselves, you see. That's why these self-help gospel programs are not of the Word of God. They're not of God. You want to feel good about yourself, you must look at the cross of Jesus Christ and what He has done on your behalf. That's grace. We have nothing good in of ourselves. Amen? So, if He were preaching an earthly message, you'd want to tickle ears. Any false teacher would. Every false teacher does. But his teaching was the teaching of the truth to honor the one who sent him. On the other hand, the Jewish teachers of the law were twisting the scriptures to suit their own needs, to suit their own desires, and they had bound the Jewish people in such a way that they were following doctrines that were actually contrary to the word of God, contrary to the way of salvation. That's known as the broad way, and that way leads to what? Destruction. The straight way is the narrow way. The turnstile, one at a time, no baggage. You come one at a time, naked and bare, through Jesus Christ. None of your own agenda. We don't come, I, uh, okay, Christ plus what I think. No, it's Christ alone and what He's declared through Scripture. That's it. Any belief outside of that, you're on the broad road. It leads to destruction. Now, these are the people that Jesus was confronting. These legalistic hypocrites. Now, to get an idea of who he's facing, turn, if you will, to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. Now, Jesus sternly addresses these religious leaders. And the language of Christ is actually openly shocking. Absolutely shocking. For those of you who think, well, oh, Jesus is all love, listen to these words. Listen to this series of woes. Jesus 
repeatedly asserts his woes here in this chapter on the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He labels them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, blind fools, likening them to whitewashed tombs that, that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. He refers to them as sons of hell. A brood of vipers. In other words, a pit of snakes. But for what purpose does Jesus use such severe language towards these religious leaders? And there's three primary traits revealed here that arouses the anger of Jesus. Yes, the anger of Jesus. First is that they loved the outward form of religion. They loved to appear religious. Minus an inf- minus an inner transformation of the of the soul. Look at verses 3 to 7. Actually, we begin in first verse 1 20, chapter 23. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe. But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments and they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and they love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Oh, teacher, teacher. They love being greeted as religious teachers. They love to be honored within the community. They love to be thought of as as holy, as religious, as almost divine. But on the inside, they were full of greed. They were self-indulgent and they were self-righteous. You know, legalistic people love the look of outward righteousness. They brought in their phylacteries, these little boxes that had scriptures in them. They wear them on their forehead or on their wrist. They brought them out. They make them bigger so that they definitely knew what they were. Oh, we're so close to the scriptures. We're teachers of the law. Therefore, we have them on our forehead and on our wrist. The hems of their garments, things that dangled from their garments... They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be known. Secondly, they had lost their overall proper perspective of God's revelation, and they became overwhelmingly focused on the minors, sacrificing the majors. You know people who major in the minors? Nitpicky little legalistic people, really irritating. That's what they were. Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat yet swallow a camel. You know, they become so meticulous about tithing that they would tithe a tenth of everything, including the stuff that came out of their garden. It's meticulous. And then Jesus, you see the humor of Jesus and his sarcasm. You know, they would strain out drinking water for any unclean bugs so that they would not um, ingest an unclean little gnat. He says, you're straining out a gnat, but at the same time you're missing something. You're swallowing camels all along, you bunch of hypocrites. Isn't that funny? I think it's funny. They love to major in the minors. 
A third derogatory criticism is that these leaders spread their heretical venom and they would infect others. They'd fail to enter the kingdom themselves and at the same time, they would shut the door for their apprentices. Look at verses 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves... Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Go count how many times he calls them hypocrites sometime. It's a good study for you. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, to be seen, you make long prayers. You stand in the center of the city, make these long prayers looking all spiritual. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Why? They knew more. They knew more. Beware to those who sit under sound teaching of the Bible and remain uncommitted to Christ. Greater shall your condemnation be, he says. The principle remains the same. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So he's saying that the converts that would be one would become more deceived than they are. False teachers, cult leaders, they end up creating disciples that are even more deceived than their teachers. So what this means is that the Pharisees who twisted the Scriptures created legalistic rules deduced from Scripture and they became so fully embraced by their, by their um, disciples, these converts, that they out-Phariseed the Pharisees. Those who were being trained became worse hypocritical Pharisees than those who are training them. Now this is who Jesus is facing here. These are the people that he's confronting and he is exposing and now about ready to declare the duty of his teaching. And this is where we did not get to last time. So there's your introduction. So we've seen thus far the disposition of Jesus' teaching. It's on divine time. It's of divine wisdom. The doctrine of his teaching was that it was not of an earthly origin but it was from the Father in heaven. And now the duty, the duty of his teaching, or the purpose of his teaching. Purpose didn't start with D. These all started with D and it looked good, so it's the duty of his teaching. It's to expose hypocrisy and a false, dead faith. You know how many people profess to be Christian today? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. I love Jesus too. They boasted in having the law being recipients of the law. That's what Israel was. They were recipients of the law of God. They were supposed to be a light to all the pagan nations around them. Verse 19 to 24, now we see the duty. The one who fulfilled the law exposes now the pretenders of the law. He reveals the motives of their heart. The motives of their heart. Verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, the Jews oftentimes patted themselves on the back because they were recipients of the law of Almighty God. Now, Jesus goes on to make it clear that there's a great difference between being one who receives the law and one who keeps the law. A world of difference, right? Such is the world of difference between being a hearer of the law and a doer of the law. Many people sit in churches, many people will sit in churches today throughout this country, they will hear the truth of God but they will not do the truth of God. Professing to be in Christ. 
all the while. So Jesus reminds them that the very law that they thought they could uphold would only condemn them altogether. The very thing in which they boasted in was their condemnation. The law condemns. It's condemning. So Jesus now flips the script. They were saying back in verse 15, he's unschooled. He didn't come up under our training. It's amazing. Where did he learn these things? So the one they identified as not having been schooled charges them with being violators of the very law that they claim to uphold. Imagine that. Calling them out. They professed to be disciples of Moses, yet they had hearts full of envy, full of murder. The envy birthed resentment and bitterness and hatred against Christ and they wanted him dead. And the hatred that was there would be revealed only months later at Calvary. Jesus went on to declare that there was no unrighteousness in him, but he would now proceed to uncover the very unlawful wickedness which filled them. He was, he was righteous, they were altogether unrighteous. Because they stood ready here to break the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. Thou shalt not murder. So his question, why do you seek me to seek to kill me, is very serious. And there's, there's something much more profound going on here. Think about this for a moment. First of all, if Jesus was a false prophet, he deserves to die according to that law. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. That's the law of God. Someone proclaimed to be a prophet, they proclaimed to come with the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and it wasn't of the Lord, you stone him. If the prophecy that he proclaims doesn't come to pass, you set him up and you stone him. Imagine today, all these fellas on the TV who make these prophetic claims, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, in this month or this year, this week, this is going to happen, it doesn't happen. How many stonings would we have in the, just in the last 10 years alone? It shows you the goal that such teachers have. Now, secondly, their desire to kill Jesus discloses the, re discloses the reality for us that they violate their own law. Now, if they boasted in the law, that means that they were not only recipients of the law, but they were teachers of that law. And to be a teacher of the law, you must know the law. And if you know the law, you know what the law proclaims. And what that law proclaimed was that of the coming Messiah, who was standing before them. They should have recognized him. They should have been able to identify him. But even at his birth, if you remember, Magi came. And they came in with a big entourage. Let me tell you what, it wasn't three guys on camels. It was wise men from the east. They came and they would have traveled with a large entourage. It would have been incredibly intimidating. Herod would have been tripping as he looked out his window. He would have saw dust and he would have seen this large, this large um, entourage um, following these magi. And they kept coming and asking throughout Jerusalem, where is he, where is he, where is he, where is he? He used to be born king of the Jews. Where is he? Herod gathers his scribes and his Pharisees and he says, where is he to be born king of the Jews? You know what they said? As the scripture said, in Bethlehem of Judea. They knew what it said. They missed him. They missed him. 
How many people know the gospel today, inside and out? And they'll die without him. That's crushing. That breaks my heart. People can reiterate the gospel. And they're not saved by the gospel. So these letters they should have known so well, they spoke of Jesus Christ himself, who they did not know. Jesus is actually the one for whom Moses wrote. Turn back to John chapter 1. Look at verse 45. Now here's the first called disciples of Jesus Christ. Look at what they said. Philip, he found Nathanael. And what did he say? We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus said himself back in John 5, beginning in verse 46. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And here we are in chapter 7. They don't believe his words because they don't believe what they claim to know so well, you see. Rather than recognizing the author and the fulfillment of the law who was standing before them, they in their vanity were deceived to think that they could uphold that law. You've heard this said before. Luther, I think, actually came up with this. The Ten Commandments, the law is like a mirror. When I look into the mirror and I see I need a shave, I grab my razor and I shave. If you look into the mirror and you see that you need a shave, you don't grab the mirror to shave yourself. The mirror reveals that something needs to be done. Like some of y'all should have combed your hair this morning, amen? Uh, just joking. See if you're awake, that's all. I love you. The mirror reveals something. The law reveals that you can't do this. God's standard is perfection. Holy perfection. They professed to not only be recipients of that law, but to be the ones who could uphold that law. The law ought to drive you to your face, pleading for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Poor in spirit means that you are, you are a bankrupt sinner spiritually dead you have nothing to offer God so you reach out as a beggar pleading for his mercy they never did that they never came to that place some of them I'm sure did the scriptures actually say some of them did but the majority did not that's how deceiving religion is that is the grip of religion that is, that is the vice of the law and legalism It'll kill you. It'll destroy you. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So Paul is pointing out that no one can keep the law in its entirety. It's impossible. And he supports it by pointing out and quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. You can claim to uphold the law, you uphold the whole law impossible so those who claim to be trying you know people here I'm trying to keep the law of God I'm trying to keep the, the Ten Commandments they're cursed they were cursed then and they're cursed now the law is a curse it's beautiful it's perfect it's glorious but it can't be upheld by finite humanity because we have a nature that will not allow us to do so and it's a sin nature 
It takes the converting work of the Holy Spirit to transform the inside, take residence within that sinner, enabling you now to be a doer of the Word. You'll love the law. And you'll simply abide in Christ and be able to uphold it by His grace. James 2.10 says, Forever shall, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point is guilty of it all. You're guilty of it all. You may not murder someone, but you've had such hatred to your heart that the ba- in your heart that the Bible <clears throat> says that it's equivalent to murder. You may never cheat on your spouse. The Bible says if you've ever lusted for someone in your mind, which everyone is guilty of, it's equal to adultery. So, the law is a curse. It's impossible. Romans chapter 3. Why? Because there's no one righteous. No, not one. Verse 19 of chapter 3 of Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thank God for the law. How else will we know we're sinners without the law of God? Amen? By God's grace, He reveals to your heart and my heart that you're a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, and He's provided a way. It's the cross. That's grace. That's why He came. To uphold the law. Only Jesus upheld the law perfectly. Because only He could. It takes God to do that. That's the point. It takes God in human flesh to uphold that law. It's the reason He came. So Jesus is saying, you know, you who boast in the law and you claim to uphold it, you're desiring to kill me. He understands the motive of their hearts. He's pointing out that murder resides in their hearts and, as I said, it would later be revealed. So his words here penetrate much deeper than the surface question, why do you seek to kill me? You know, anytime there's a lack of love for the truth of the Word of God, there'll always be an attitude against the truth. You know, we love to teach the truth here. We love to teach verse by verse because then you can't leave anything out. You can't leave the uncomfortable stuff out. And the only way God's people are going to truly grow is by learning God's Word verse by verse by verse by verse. It's called expositional preaching. Exegetical study. This is what it says. This is what it means. This is how you apply it to your life, right? When you do that, because of the popular methods of ministry today, rumors start. And I cannot tell you how many rumors have started about this little church. We don't advertise. We don't send out posters. We don't send out emails. And people say that I don't believe in the gift of teaching. That we don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Things of that nature. And other weird things that I won't even share with you. But it's just so weird. Today, you have this false movement of, well, this movement of false humility that says, who are we to say what God meant by what He said? Right? In the emergent church movement. It's arrogant to stand up at a pulpit and proclaim the truth as though we claim to know it and have all the answers. You know what? God wrote it to understand it, to declare to His people. Amen? And I believe that it pierces the heart so deeply that they don't want to know what it means. That's the real problem. They don't want to know what it means. Also, anywhere where there's hatred against the truth, there's also going to be animosity towards those who faithfully proclaim it. Those who herald the word. Herald means to preach, or preaching means to herald the truth. You don't make suggestions 
is a preacher of the gospel. You proclaim the authoritative truth of God. So oftentimes, those that are uncompromised preachers of the word are regarded by others as being severe, arrogant, know-it-alls who've gone off the deep end. Perhaps a couple of you are thinking that this morning. I hope not. And all they are is dedicated to heralding the truth of God. And here this crowd interrupts. Right? If you can't beat them logically with the truth, start accusing them. You're nuts, they said to Jesus. You're crazy. What do you mean? Nobody wants to kill you. Who would want to kill you? Verse 20, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Now, this crowd, or the majority of the crowd, was obviously at this point oblivious to their leader's plot to kill Jesus at this point. Because as we will see next week, verse 25 says, those that resided in Jerusalem knew that the Jewish leaders were plotting against Jesus. So the majority of the people, remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, so you have people coming from all different regions throughout Palestine ascending up to Jerusalem for this great feast, a seven-day feast. So many of them were Galileans for sure, and they had seen the signs, miracles, and wonders of Jesus, and they're really saying here, what do you mean? You must have a demon. No one wants to kill you. Who would want to kill you? You do so much good. You healed my aunt. You healed my son. Who would want to kill you? You fed us the loaves and the fish. But the Jerusalem people, verse 25, they knew. They knew. So these were certainly the common people. The people here, verse 20, were the common people within the temple courts that day listening to the teachings of Christ. And they deemed him insane. So... To say that you have a demon, people would awful, often uh, um, think that anyone who was insane had demon oppression or possession or whatnot. So this awful blasphemy of the Lord not only exposes their blindness to the glory of Christ, but also demonstrates the desperate wickedness of their hearts. See, Jesus is exposing what's really there now. He's just, he just cut it wide open. Just like filleting a steak, he lays it wide open. He's cutting open the rib cage and he's tearing it back. And the stench is coming out of what they're really made of. You know, oftentimes, like, for instance, when you share the gospel, you share the gospel with unbelievers. Unbelievers will do everything to draw attention away from their sin and the narrow gospel gate. They'll do everything to draw attention away. They want to sidetrack us from the message, away from themselves, and they want to attempt to discredit our Savior. Have you ever experienced that, sharing the gospel? Well, what do they say? Oftentimes, I've heard when I've shared the gospel, and you get to the issue of an individual sin and the glory of the cross, it being the only way, almost always someone will make the comment, well, if this gospel is so critical to a person getting saved, what about those people who live in the rainforest of South America? What about those people? That's not fair, right? I mean, after all, they serve God in their own little way. Well, the truth of the matter is, they could give a rip less about the people in the rainforest of South America. That's an excuse. It's to draw attention away, you see. So you stout, start making claims. Well, your God is unfair. This gospel message is unfair. 
They want to get the pressure off of themselves. Same is the case here. They want to throw it back on you. Start accusing, making accusations, pointing their fingers back when they're really being convicted. But the truth of the matter is that God calls missionaries to those places, doesn't He? He'll get His people where He wants them to be, proclaiming His truth in His time according to His purpose and His way. Don't ever forget this. People are already condemned. You were condemned. I was condemned. Not because you haven't heard about Christ, but for the simple fact that you're a sinner that separates you from Christ. That's the truth of the matter. Condemned because they're sinners and they suppress the truth and their unrighteousness as Romans chapter 1 reveals for us. Everyone has an element of truth, but they suppress that truth because they love their sin. They love their self-righteousness as these leaders did. And there's only one way out, and it's the cross. So Jesus, long story short here, Jesus does not take the bait. That's the point. If you're sharing the gospel, don't take the bait. Just keep proclaiming the truth. If people have a legitimate question, give them a correct answer. But don't be taking the bait, getting, in, getting off track with all these arguments. Stay true to the facts. That's what Jesus does. No attempt to defend himself here. We don't need to defend him. He didn't say, look, trust me, I'm not out of my mind. Please believe me, I'm not out of my mind. I don't have a demon. He doesn't do that. Not at all. He doesn't waste his breath. So while they profess to be disciples of Moses, Moses having hearts full of envy and murder, he hits them where they live. Notice this now. Verses 21 to 23. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? He's saying here that, you know, I did one work among many. Jesus did many works. But there's one work for which you want to condemn me and kill me. It was performed on the Sabbath. Where was that? That was back in chapter 5 when he healed the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. Remember that? In John chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It's that one work which infuriated them. It was months prior to this and they embraced it and they couldn't wait for him to come back. Because there is a man that Jesus approached and he said, you want to be made well? Well, there's no one to throw me in the pool. Jesus said, get up, take up your bed, and what? Walk. 38 years he was in that condition. Jesus made a command. He picked up his bed. He began to walk. And the religious hypocritical Pharisee said, hey, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Well, the one who made me well told me to do it. Who is he that made you well? Right? It was Jesus. That's why they wanted him dead. So that's the work that he's referring to. That this bitter hatred and resentment was stewing within them. So Jesus goes on now and he brings up the law of circumcision. They love the law so much, he goes, let's talk about the law. That's good, let's talk about it. Now, the law of circumcision was established long before the Mosaic law. And Jesus says so. It goes all the way back to the forefathers and it began with Abraham. as the sign of the covenant. It's a sign, again, that points to something, what? Greater than itself. Signs, miracles, miracles and wonders of the apostles. 
They perform supernatural healings. Okay? People don't have that miraculous power today. Those were sign miracles that pointed to their apostolic authority. There's only three times in biblical history that, Jesus, that God ever did supernatural works through human beings. During the time of Moses and Joshua representing the law. Elijah and Elisha representing the prophets. And Jesus and the apostles representing Christ, the, church, the, the apostles, and his church. To point to something greater than those men. It's the authority of God and what he was doing at that time. Does God heal today? Amen. Anyone he wants, wherever he wants. But there is no individual that has that power. That gift of healing. God does the healing. He may do it as we pray for someone and we get, we, we get the blessing of seeing them healed. But a sign points to something greater than itself. There's no power in this circumcision. It points to the covenant of God between Abraham and all those who would be children of Abraham, us included, his church. Jesus himself was brought into the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. Jesus saying, look, I made, a, I made a man well on the Sabbath. Your leaders, they were stunned. But in obedience to the law of Moses, they'll go on and circumcise an infant male child on the Sabbath. You want to kill me for healing someone, but you'll perform circumcision on the eighth day if it falls on the Sabbath. So what's his point? Circumcision was a surgical ceremonial act of mutilation. Cutting away the foreskin was a sign of putting away evil flesh. As he cuts away the foreskin of our heart, he takes out a, a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. This is the evil. It represents evil. He cuts it and he takes it away. Yet in that mutilation comes only partial healing to that male child. So he says, if the law permitted the mutilation of one part of the flesh through a surgical procedure, how is it that you find me guilty of restoring a man completely on the Sabbath? Oh, wisdom. That is such wisdom. So the analogy is simple. Mutilation of the flesh versus restoration of the flesh completely. And only God can do that. So this is a powerful, irrefutable argument for which there is no answer. You get that? There is no answer. Therefore, what? There's no response. Jesus stupefies them. He stupefies that group of people. They're dumbfounded. They don't know what to say. So the Lord closes now with a dialogue. Closes this dialogue with, with a warning. Verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So, as infinite God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed the law-breaking motives of these hypocrites' hearts, Jesus commanded these finite men not to judge according to appearance. Doesn't mean you're not supposed to judge. He said, just don't judge according to appearance. Judge with a righteous judgment. In other words, stop judging superficially and judge in accordance with what is right and what is true. With what is right is what it, and what is true. Now the context of this verse, verse 24, must be seen in light of verse 17. And again, verse 17 of this passage, verses 14 to 24, is really the key verse of the entire passage. 
If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, what he's saying is, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, which means teaching, whether it is from God or whether this attack on the Son of God, that which is against Christ, is merely hypocritical and birthed out of righteous legalism. So, if you want to experience the promises of God, and to you, church, if you want to experience the promises of God's Word, you know the promises of God's Word. Do you suffer with anxiety? Fear? Guilt? Bitterness? Unforgiveness? If you will, if you desire to do the will of God, His Word, you will experience the victories that are promised according to His Word. There's a principle of truth for us all today. But you must will to do His will, and you will know concerning that teaching that it is of God. Speaking of judgment, it's amazing how, how much of the unbelieving world can recite John 3.16. Okay, that's one thing. It's another thing that's more amazing is how many of the unbelieving world can cite Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge another, you yourself will be judged. Right? So someone who proclaims to be a Christian, and you go, oh, you're a brother or sister in Christ. Yes, I am. Can I ask why you're fornicating? You're living with your boyfriend? You're living with your girlfriend? You're a drunk? You're a dope-smoking fool? You profess to be in Christ? You can't judge me. Judge not, lest you be judged. The command there in Matthew 7, verse 1, was to the Lord's disciples and that they're not authorized to, ju to, to adopt a judgmental attitude. Hypocritical judgment. In other words, we can't judge people's motives. Okay? You can't judge the root. You can only judge the what? The fruit. You don't know the motives of someone's heart. I don't know the motives of your heart. If we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're now accountable because of the cross because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Therefore, when someone gets baptized, they're making a public profession of their faith that they're washed and they're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that they are a brother or sister in Christ. And if they fall into radical sin, we hold them accountable, we go one-on-one. -on -one. Because we're looking at fruit. Make a judgment and make sure it's a righteous judgment. If we weren't to judge at all, how would we perform church discipline? Amen? Come on, somebody. Now, unfortunately, within the church... You will find busybodies who have nothing better to do than to be consumed with what everyone else is or isn't doing. Nitpicky little thorns in the flesh. Do not be like that. That is irritating. That's legalism. That's a form of legalism. Because they don't realize, as chapter 7 says, that they have a plank in their own eye. Now, what's the purpose of Matthew 7? I'm, I'm going to sidetrack here a little bit. It, it says, look, first remove the plank from your eyes so you can see clearly to do something. And you know what it is you're supposed to do? You want to see clearly so that what? You can observe the speck in your brother's eye. The speck is sin. What does sin do for the Christian? It hinders the ultimate powerful blessing of God on your day-to-day -day sanctification. So you want to see clearly so that you can help your brother. That means you have to go in love. And the unloving attitude is the big 
clank in your eye that every time you turn and go near them, you bop them in the head. Right? So remove the unloving attitude, remove the plank, so now you can see clearly and you can go to your brother or sister and you can help them with the speck because they might not even realize they have a speck, that there's some sin there they don't recognize. So you go in love. So, you know, you don't want to be the guy with the checklist of being the fruit inspector either. Oh, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. You know, Dude, get the pl- look at your life. Get the plank out of your eye. Come on now. I'm not talking about that. Matthew 7 forbids judgmentalism, not moral discernment. Moral discernment is very important. Because if you read on in Matthew 7, Jesus proceeds to speak of some people as dogs and hogs. He said, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast pearls before what? Swine. You're also to identify and recognize false teachers. You shall know them by their fruit. You will see what kind of tree they are, you see. Now, if we weren't to judge, you would not be able to discern who the dogs, the hogs, or the frauds are. Amen? Were it not for righteous judgment, wouldn't be able to say a word to anybody. Jesus said, judge rightly. Not motives. Make a right and proper judgment. So the immediate context, back to John 7. The immediate context of John 7, 24 is in connection to verse 17, that if you're going to judge Jesus, this is the immediate context of what was going on. If you're going to judge Jesus about his claims, who he is, what he's done, with some superficial judgment about who he is and what he is, You'll never know Him. But if you will to do His will, the guarantee is that you will come to know Him. Guarantee. And it will reveal what? That God's already working in your life. Drawing you to Himself in the first place. That's grace. That's grace. So again, this is the only subjective, experiential analysis for which anyone can put Jesus to the test with. And guess what? If someone fails, he didn't fail you. You failed by proving that your being drawn to him was not divine. You were just wanting a little additive to your life. I'll try this Jesus stuff. We'll see how this works out. As soon as the wheels fall off the wagon about some portion of your life, you start to blame Christ. That's the danger. So, for the test not to work, merely reveals one's outward, phony attempt at, quote-unquote, knowing Jesus. So, the duty or the purpose of Christ's teaching is that it reveals thoughts, motives, and one's heart condition. Clearly. Clearly. If their approach to God here, their approach to God's will was one of faith, they would soon be able to discern that Jesus was no Sabbath breaker. He was no Sabbath breaker, but he was the one who fulfills both the Sabbath and the circumcision. For he's the fulfillment of the law. He is its author, and he's the one who came to fulfill it. So why are they so angry that Jesus would heal an entire man on the Sabbath? Why? Why are, that not, why are they not making a rightful judgment about Jesus? Why is their judgment superficial? Why is it full of hypocrisy? The reason? They hate the message. And if you hate the message, you hate the messenger. 
That's the issue. If people hate you for, for, for proclaiming the truth in love, now remember, the gospel's an offense. We don't want to add to the offense. We don't need to be irritating. We just proclaim the truth. If they hate you, they don't hate you. They hate the message. And ultimately, they hate the originator of the message. Christ. Jesus said, look, if they persecuted me, do you not think they're going to persecute you? Blessed are you who, who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward where? Not here, but in heaven. Heaven. Did a funeral yesterday, performed a funeral ceremony in Orange County, young girl in her 30s who died, and I knew that I was going into an environment of very wealthy, very well-to-do, very successful 30-something type of people, Orange County people from um, Corona Del Mar area. And, uh, you know, when you go into that environment and you're going to preach the gospel, once the ceremony is concluded and you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, there is no hope outside of Him. You know, you have a captive audience for one. But man, you can sure read almost what's in people's hearts just by their countenance. And there's a lot of different countenances. I always notice this when I do an unbeliever's um, funeral. You have those people that look off like, wow, this is the message I remember hearing when I was a kid. And there's all the, almost this drawing like, man, tell me more. Tell me more. They're almost coming out of their seat. And then there's the people like, you dirty whatever. You know I'm stuck here and you're going to bring this. Angry, bitter, people who stare at you, people who look away, people who start sweating, loosening their collar. The gospel is an offense. Jesus Christ is an offense. And he reveals what is truly in a man or woman's heart. They hate the message because they hate the messenger. They don't want to hear it. Why else would they reject the one whose claims to come from the Father, proving it by signs, miracles, and wonders? He was proving it. Healing people, casting out demons, and they wanted him dead because they hate the messenger. They see what he did. Remember, they wanted his hand. They wanted what, they could do, what he could do for them. They didn't want his person. They didn't want him. Regarding the Sabbath, you know, the greatest work Jesus did was also done on the Sabbath. Not just this healing of the man for which they wanted to kill him. There were two Sabbaths in the week Jesus died for our sins as believers. There was the Passover Sabbath. There was the seventh-day Sabbath. So praise God for his gracious work on the Sabbath. Amen? Notice he didn't raise on the Sabbath. He raised on the first day of the week. His victorious resurrection was on Sunday. That's the reason that we gather here today week after week, to celebrate the resurrection. Jesus is our Sabbath. He's your final rest if you're in Christ. He is the fulfillment of, the, of it all. It's not a particular day of the week. Christ is the Sabbath. That's why uh, Ryan read from Hebrews 4 this morning as I conclude. Hebrews 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They made it this burdensome task, and they wanted to kill Jesus for it. But the fulfillment of that Sabbath, the full, final, complete rest for one's soul and spiritual condition was standing before them, and they hated him. 
They wanted him dead. Colossians 2, verse 16. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of who? Christ. Christ. So believers, are you resting in Christ? Or are you bustling about? Are you worrying how God's going to work things out? Or are you willing to do His will? You will to do His will and you will know concerning the doctrine that it's from God. All those promises of Scripture, you want to see them fulfilled? Will to do His will. He'll be glorified through you. The one He bought. The one He paid for. And the one He's conforming to His own image if you're in Christ. There's joy in that, Amen. So do you really want to know more deeply, Christian? If you want to know Christ more deeply, you must will to do His will. So I encourage you this week to memorize verse 17. John 7, verse 17. Memorize it, apply it. Understand the immediate context, but don't forget the overall principle. Don't forget the overall principle. You know why you can do it? Believers, because He's enabled you to do it. Because the Holy Spirit resides in you. And His will is that you do that which He has commanded. And He doesn't leave you alone. He enables you. That's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. And if you're not a believer here this morning, you're deeply convicted, you're probably mad at me. This is not my message, it's His message. I'm, an, I'm the under-shepherd of the Great Shepherd for you to be able to will to do His will, for you to be able to desire to do the will of Jesus Christ, you must understand that you are a sinner. That you are separated from God. That you are under divine wrath. You will be judged for your sin. You will stand separated from Him forever. You will suffer the wrath of God eternally, separated from Him forever and ever and ever. That's the bad news. The Gospel... The good news is that Jesus Christ came. He lowered Himself. He became a man. He pointed out the sin in individuals' lives. He convicts. Once He's revealed this, and you understand this, then you call out for His mercy. You must call out for His mercy. You must pray to Him, cry out to Him, confess your sin, invite Him, ask Him to enable you to believe this glorious truth. Because outside of His divine, glorious power, you have no ability. You must repent. You must turn from your sin. And you must turn to Christ and embrace Him completely. Bowing before Him as Lord. By His grace, He will lift you up. Grant you grace to believe, to understand the power of the cross and the purpose of His shed blood. That He was there as a sacrifice for all those who would believe. And you too then will be able to will to do His will. You'll desire to do His will. And my prayer is that he has you here today as an unbeliever to convert you by his grace. So if you would, stand with me and we will pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
powerful gospel. And first, Lord, I want to pray for your church. I want to pray for those who are here today gathered on this, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the glorious celebration day of the resurrection, your resurrection. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for gracing us. Thank you for indwelling us. Thank you that you've given us the ability to understand your word. And I pray that everyone here who's in Christ would be so blessed this week to understand the depth of the meaning of this passage. Those who you confronted, that which you declared of yourself, and that we will will to do your will, understanding more richly, more deeply, Lord, the doctrinal truth of Scripture. Lord, bless your church. Bless these dear people. Pray that they be encouraged and encouragers to one another. And Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you, I pray that conviction would come upon their very soul to understand that they stand separated from you relationally. And I pray, Lord, that they'll respond to your gospel truth, the cry out for mercy, that you would grant them the ability to see, the ability to believe, embrace them, so that they be able to embrace you in return. Lord, for your glory, save their souls today, we pray. In Jesus' name, together we all say, Amen.